Will you turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 8? The Gospel of Luke chapter 8. The primary purpose of the Gospel writers is to show us who Jesus is. To just present Jesus in his life, his actions, his compassion, his power, to present his words, his teaching, his wisdom, and ultimately to present his life-giving sacrifice for us and his resurrection from the grave and his ascension to the right hand of God. But the gospel writers, their purpose is to show us Jesus. To what end? That we might believe. That we might put our faith in him and him alone for salvation and eternal life. Over the last several episodes that we've looked at in the Gospel of Luke, Luke has shown us different portraits of the ministry of Jesus that show us different aspects of his character, sometimes highlighting his compassion, his love, his concern for those going through times of difficulty, other times just showing his power, his sovereignty. And our passage this morning fits into that latter category of just showing us the power, the authority of Jesus Christ, and specifically his authority over the spiritual realm, the unseen realm of spiritual forces, of wickedness in high places, as Paul describes it. And so in Luke chapter 8, verse 26 through verse 39, Luke records for us that Jesus and his disciples sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. 
The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have this morning to read your word. Lord, we thank you for this story of the Lord Jesus that has been recorded for us for the last more than 2,000 years. And Father, we thank you that we can read it, we can meditate on it, we can learn its truths. Father, may we receive the intended purpose of Luke this morning and your spirit, and that as we, that we might come to know and understand who Jesus is, and that we might believe in him. And having believed that our faith might be strengthened in him and that we might give to him the honor and the glory that is his due. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. C.S. Lewis once said that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our human race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, that is the demons themselves, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and magician with the same delight. C.S. Lewis, I think, was right about that. When it comes to the subject of Satan, demons, spiritual warfare, the unseen realm, there do seem to be two extreme reactions to it. One is to totally deny it, to disregard it, to say there is no such thing. There's only what we can see. There is no spiritual realm. But those who believe that do that to their own demise. But the other extreme, I think, and sometimes I think this happens to Christians, is to become too interested in demons, to become too infatuated with the subject that people begin looking for demons everywhere and seeing spiritual unseen forces in everything. And I don't think either perspective is healthy. I I think many times people talk too freely of demons and assign things to the responsibility of demons that demons had nothing to do with. For example, you've probably heard people say, oh, he's struggling with the demon of alcohol. Or this person is struggling with the demon of lust or or some other temptation that that person is struggling with. And I think much of that talk, really all it ends up doing is relieving the guilty sinner of their individual responsibility. It essentially becomes a, the devil made me do it, theology. Instead of placing the blame on the faulty decisions of the individual, we blame the behavior on some demon that is making the person do these things. Now, while I do believe in the reality of demons, and in the fact that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world, I don't think that we should be looking for demons or demonic forces behind every bush or in every corner. And one of the reasons I think that is because, one, the very nature of our sinful humanity is that we don't have to blame anything on demons. We do a good enough job of sinning on our own, out of our own deceptive 
sinful hearts. We don't have to go around blaming demons for things that come out of our own hearts. And the other reason I think we don't need to focus too much on demons is because I'm convinced that demonic, evil, spiritual forces were heightened and were at a greater level of activity during the ministry of Jesus than is currently happening today. And that would stand to reason, wouldn't it? That if the very son of God, the very centerpiece of history, the very reason why Jesus came to earth while he is here in this world, seeking to accomplish the mission of God, the father, that that is the time when the devil would launch his most aggressive attacks. And so we see in Luke chapter four, that Jesus is directly tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And several times throughout the ministry of Jesus, we see Jesus encountering people under the direct influence of demons or demonic activity. I think there's a heightened, there's an elevated uh, prevalence of demonic activity during the ministry of Jesus because Jesus was there seeking to do the eternal mission of the father that had been planned from before the foundation of the world. And so now that Jesus has died, risen, and now ascended to the right hand, I don't think we see quite as much demonic activity as perhaps Jesus saw during his earthly ministry. And so our passage this morning does not give us a model for how to go around casting out demons. That's not the purpose of the passage. Just like the purpose of last week's passage was not to show us how to go around calming storms by saying, peace, be still, right? What was the purpose? To show us Jesus. So this doesn't show us how to go around casting out demons. This shows us who Jesus is and his power over the, the authority of demons and unseen realms. And so we've seen Jesus demonstrate his power over nature by commanding a storm to stop. We've seen Jesus heal people. As we move forward in the story, we're going to see Jesus demonstrate his authority over physical healing and even the power of death itself. But in this passage, we see Jesus showing his authority over the spiritual realm. And verse 26 says that Jesus and his disciples sailed to the region of the Gerasenes which is across the lake from Galilee. And so this is probably the very next thing right after what we saw last week, where Jesus and his disciples were on the Sea of Galilee in the storm. Jesus had sent them across the lake. And in the middle of the lake, he calms the storm, causing them to say, who is this? What kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? But now they have reached the other side and they've come to this region of the Gerasenes. We don't know exactly where this is, but most scholars seem to think that it's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, maybe toward the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee. And one of the interesting things about this area and why this episode in Jesus' ministry is significant is because sailing across the lake, sailing across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is moving out of more exclusively Jewish territory into more territory that is mixed. Some Jews, some Gentile, some Samaritan. It's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And so kind of like Samaria, it was not a region that was held in high regard by the Jews. It was seen as kind of a mixed place, not, not somewhere that was ideal. And so Jesus' ministry is branching out. 
he is not just concerned about the Jews, but he's also concerned about the Samaritans. He's concerned about the Gentiles. And so even before the mission of the book of Acts, where the apostles are sent out into the uttermost parts of the earth, we even see Jesus really uh, kind of foreshadowing that in his own ministry by going to a centurion who was a Gentile, now going to a region of the Gerasenes, which is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which had more Gentiles in it. So Jesus is foreshadowing the mission of the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. And verse 27 says that when Jesus came on shore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. Now, I don't, it's hard for us. Luke does a fantastic job under the authority of the Spirit here describing the condition of this man. But even with the words that Luke tells us, it's hard for us to imagine this scene, isn't it? Here's a man who is completely out of his mind. He is literally living like an animal in the hillsides, in the rocks, in the tombs. He is naked. He's he's irrational. He's violent. According to the Gospel of Mark, he would cut himself and hit himself and bruise himself. So here's a man who is naked, bruised, bleeding, out of his mind, not in control of his own faculties, he is under control. He is possessed. He is under the complete authority of multiple, many demons who have taken up residence inside of him. He is out of his mind. And so you can imagine that this man was treated like a wild animal because that's how he was acting. At first, they tried to chain him up like a wild animal. They put chains on him. They put him in a cage. It didn't work. The demons in him somehow caused him to have more than human strength and broke free from those chains. And he went out into the wilderness and lived in the solitary places, Luke says. Specifically, he lived among the dead. Very appropriate, isn't it, for demons to drive a man out into the tombs, the place of the dead. Because that is basically the reign of Satan, isn't it? The reign of death. And so this man is out there in among the tombs, out of his mind, living like an animal, complete misery. And it says in verse 28 that when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I dare you to find anywhere in the Gospels any more amazing greeting of Jesus from someone he had never met before than that. This man is out of his mind. This man is irrational. He's living like an animal. This man probably could not put two plus two together and get four. He's completely irrational. But yet, on seeing Jesus whom we have no record in the gospel of Luke as ever having met Jesus before, immediately knows who Jesus is and not only knows his name, but correctly more than anyone else alive at that day, probably correctly identified him as the son of the most high God. Jesus, son of the most high God, what do you want with me? 
how is it that someone in that kind of condition, that kind of irrationality, could make that kind of clear, accurate identification of who Jesus is? It's because the demons know who Jesus is, don't they? When it says, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God, it's really not the man speaking, it's the demons inside of him speaking. They know who Jesus is. According to James chapter 2, verse 19, says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So even the demons, according to James 2, 19, they know who Jesus is. The demons have a belief in God. And so these devils, they don't possess saving faith, but they know who Jesus is. And they know that Jesus is there by the authority of God. So much are they aware of it that they tremble at his power and authority. And these demons in this man tremble before the authority of Jesus and they kneel before him. And their response is, what are you doing? Why are you here? Are you here to torture us? Are you here to send us to the abyss before the time? According to the book of Revelation, at the very end of time, Jesus is going to lock up the devil and his demons in the abyss, throw them into the deep. And these demons are afraid that that time of the end has already come. Why are you here? What are you going to do to us? They are literally fearful of what Jesus is going to do to them because they recognize him as who he is, the son of the most high God. Jesus asked the demon, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. That's an understatement. When he says legion, we really don't know exactly how many demons this man had. But if the word legion is any any indication, a Roman legion consisted of 6,000 soldiers and 120 horsemen. And so there are thousands, hundreds at least, of demons in this man. And so the answer shows the desperateness of this man's situation. I can't imagine being possessed by one demon, let alone hundreds or even thousands. This man is under complete evil, satanic domination. This is spiritual warfare at its highest. It's thousands against one. Thousands of spiritual forces against one mortal human being. Jesus simply says, come out. Come out. And they come out. Just like Jesus can say to the wind and the waves, be still, and they're calm. Just like Jesus can say to a dead man, get up, and he gets up. Jesus can say to thousands of demons, get out of here, and they have to get out. 
as much power, as much authority, as much influence as you want to attribute to Satan, there is one thing that you must believe. They have no power except for that which is allowed to them by God. You can even see that in the book of Job. Job wants to torment Satan. Job ha- or Satan has to get permission first before he can do anything to Job. Satan's influence, Satan's forces, Satan's authority, it is only in as much as God permits, only in as much as God allows. Why? Because this is not like some would want you to believe out there. This is not like good versus evil, two forces equally battling it out. No, this is God, the sovereign of the universe. And there's no question as to who's going to win this battle. Jesus says, get out, and they get out. Verse 32 says that there's a large herd of pigs nearby, which if you know anything about the Jewish lifestyle, Jewish culture, pigs were unclean. According to Leviticus 11, uh, pig meat was unclean meat. They were not to raise pigs. They were not to have pigs around. It was un- they were unclean animals. And so I don't think it's insignificant at all that Jesus ends up sending the unclean into the unclean. He sends the demonic, the unclean, into unclean animals. And probably the fact that they're even there, there's a question as to why they're there. Maybe they're, they belong to the Gentiles. This is more of a mixed area. Again, a reason why the Jews did not like this area. It was more of a mixed place. But this legion of demons actually has the audacity to ask, to beg Jesus to allow them to go into these pigs. Apparently they need some kind of a home. They have to be embodied somehow. And so they ask Jesus for them to be able to go into these pigs. Jesus is even merciful to the demons. They ask the question, have you come to torture us? Have you come to send us to the abyss? Jesus, in his mission, in his plan of fulfilling the role of the Father, that wasn't the time for that yet. Even in that, Jesus is merciful in that he has not brought what Satan and his forces rightly deserve yet at this point in history. But at one point in history, in the future, when all things come to their culmination, Satan and his forces will receive their full justice, what they are due. But even in mercy, Jesus was withholding that during this time. And even in mercy, he says, yes, you may go into these pigs. He allows them to go and they run headlong. This is how crazy they made this man. They made pigs so crazy they ran down a steep hill over a cliff and fall to their death. These demons are under the complete control of Jesus. They have to do exactly what he says. And so what is Luke trying to show us here? What's his point? Jesus is Lord of all, isn't he? He's Lord of all. Now, that seems like a very basic statement. It seems like a very basic statement that all Christians should affirm and believe. But do we understand the implications of that statement? Do we understand the implications of Jesus is Lord, master, ruler, sovereign of all? 
One theologian puts it this way, there is not one square inch in this universe over which Jesus does not cry, mine. It's his. Jesus said before he ascended to heaven, all authority in heaven and on earth. That's everything, isn't it? The earth and heaven, that's everything above the earth. That's everything is mine. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples. Jesus is Lord of all. He controls the physical illnesses of people. He controls the weather. He can tell the storm to stop. He controls the forces of hell itself. They cannot do anything without his permission. They tremble in his presence and they bow before him in fear. They beg him not to torment them and send them into the abyss. Jesus is Lord of all. Some people have this perception of Jesus out there as Jesus. He's, uh, he's just a good moral teacher. He had some wise things to say. I think a lot of our world kind of puts Jesus on the same level of like Confucius. You know, he's, he, had some, he had some wisdom. He had some proverbs. He had some nice things to say. He was a wise teacher, a moral teacher. That's not what the Bible claims of Jesus. Yes, he was a wise teacher, but that's not all he is. He is more than that. And ironically, the ones who get it the most correct are the demons themselves who say, Jesus, the son of the most high God. What are you doing here? Why are you here? They get it the most correct. But you ever notice in a lot of the episodes where Jesus casts out demons and where demons confess who Jesus is, Jesus tells them to be quiet. Jesus tells the demons to be silent, to not even speak his name or say who he is. Why? Because Jesus doesn't want the the testimony of the, the damned. He doesn't want the testimony of evil. He doesn't want the testimony of hell. But yet they're right. He is the son of the most high God. He is Lord of all. Jesus is not just a moral teacher. He's not just a kind man. He's just not a person with a compassionate heart who did kind things for people. Jesus is the sovereign of the universe, the son of the most high God. And according to the scriptures, according to Paul in Philippians 2, every knee will bow before him. Every knee, no exclusions. Every knee will bow before him. Verse 33 says, When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs and they rushed down the bank and they drowned. In verse 34, it says, When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. I'd be afraid too. Here's somebody they could not control. They could not chain up. They could not cage up. And after a couple of words of Jesus, he is sitting here clothed in his right mind, listening to Jesus teach in full submission, rationally in his right mind, bowing before the feet of Jesus. And so they went and told the people in the town how the demon-possessed man had been cured. 
Then, verse 37, all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them. That's an odd response, isn't it? Seems like an odd response. Here's a man who just took your, your region, your town's worst blemish. Here's this guy who's been ravaging through the city, acting like a crazy man, tearing himself up, cutting himself up, living like a wild animal. And Jesus just fixed that. He just healed him. He just calmed him. And their response is not, welcome, stay here for a while, fix everything around. Their response is, get out of here, leave. Why do they tell Jesus to leave? Luke says they were afraid. What are they afraid of? They're afraid of someone who has such power, such authority, that Jesus can simply say, get out. And these legion of demons leave the man. They're afraid of someone with such power because they don't know yet fully who this man is. They don't know that he is the merciful son of God who has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Their immediate reaction is fear and they tell Jesus to get out. But the man who has been cleansed, he has a better understanding of who Jesus is because he has directly received the ministry, the grace, the compassion, the power of Jesus. He has experienced it himself. He has been rescued by the Savior. So he understands it and he wants to go with Jesus. He wants to stay with Jesus and go wherever he goes, just like his disciples. But Jesus has a mission for him. He says, no, I want you to stay here. I want you to go back to your town and continue to tell your people what great things God has done for you. And sometimes that's exactly what Jesus wants us to do. In fact, that's the default mission of every child of God. Sometimes God calls us to leave house and home and to pick up and go far away. But for most of us, the calling that Jesus has on our lives is to go back to our homes, go back to our places of employment, go back to our towns, go back to our neighborhoods and tell people what great things Jesus has done for us. That's what he's called us to do. And now this is very subtle at the very end of the gospel of of this story in Luke. But notice in verse 39, Jesus says, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Did this man disobey the words of Jesus? Not at all. Because Jesus is God, isn't he? Jesus is God. He's the son of the most high God. So when he goes around telling what great things Jesus has done for him, he is telling what great things God has done for him. He's completely fulfilling what Jesus asked him to do. And so the purpose of this story is clearly focused on the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord of all. His greatness is shown in his mastery over the forces of hell itself. Paul says in Corinthians that Jesus is currently reigning on his throne until all of his enemies are brought under his submission, until all of his enemies become a footstool for his feet. He must reign, Paul says, 
until everything is fulfilled. And then he will hand the kingdom over to God the Father. Jesus is Lord of all. And when Paul says in Philippians that every knee will bow before Jesus Christ, it raises a question. And it's a question that I leave you with as we finish our, me- our message. Have you bowed the knee before Jesus already? Because at some point you will. Have you bowed before him now in faith? receiving his grace and gift of eternal life? Or have you spurned that in unbelief and one day have to bow before him before the judgment seat? But at that point, your sentence has been fixed and it will be judgment and condemnation. But every knee will bow. So I plead with you, as the apostles and the gospel writers plead with you, bow today before the Lordship of Christ and believe in him so that you will not have to bow the knee before him on judgment day. Let's bow in prayer together. Father of grace, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for what he came to accomplish, for what he came to reveal about who you are. We thank you for these stories that reveal to us the full attributes of his character, that Jesus possessed authority over everything in all of creation, not just that which is seen, such as raising someone from an illness or raising someone from the dead or calming the storms, but even that which is unseen, like the demonic realm. Thank you for this word of truth that shows us the full picture of who Jesus is. God, may we believe him today. May we bow before him, the Lord of all. And Lord, if there's someone here who is not yet bowed before Jesus as Savior, Lord, may they do so today by the grace that your spirit gives them. Lord, draw us to faith and strengthen our faith and move us, Lord, as your, as your people, as Christians, move us to day by day remind ourselves that we are under the Lordship of Christ and that every day we should be thinking about how we can orient different aspects of our lives to be conformed to the Lordship of Christ and to live for his glory under his leadership. Father, may you reign as king in our lives and may we lovingly obey. And we pray this in the name of Christ, amen.